This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the heart of Manhattan, Rockefeller Center, New York City, and Newsstand Studios. Joined as usual with John behind me. How you doing, John? Doing great, thanks. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Peachy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good. Windy yeah. out there. Uh, yeah, I guess. I didn't really notice it too much on my walk, but yeah. I saw, an, ang- I saw an angry looking guy on the sidewalk, and then one mm-hmm. of those like newspaper McGillas just started like, rolling down the street, and I thought he kicked it, but I think it was the wind. Yeah, probably yeah. the wind. Yeah. Rocking the panels, Joe Hazen, how you doing? I'm doing very well, man. Full house. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, over there in uh, California, we got, uh, I believe, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Do we have Nastasia? Yeah, she's there somewhere? She's, yeah. Yeah, she's coming on. How you doing? Everything good? Yes, everything's good. Yeah, anything interesting in the uh, land of uh, Los Angeles? Uh, no. Jack and I will talk about it next week. Jack's not on today. Oh, he's not on. Is he in transit from uh, the upper part of the coast to the lower part of the coast? He's engineering another podcast. Mm. All right. Okay. All right. And then uh, from his hidey hole up in the upper upper left, Quinn, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. Yeah, good, good. And yeah. today's special guest is Robert Simonson, uh, who I've known for whom I've known. Mm-hmm. Is whom is dead, right? Uh, <laughs> don't uh, don't put, don't put me on the spot here. I don't know. Who, I mean, whom, like whom? I mean, like when you write, do you whom? When you speak, do you whom? I, I I do. I don't do it so much when I write because it is generally regarded as pretentious, even if it is correct these days. So like, so you're the reverse. You do it when you speak, but not when you write, because you're like, I want to be a person, but then when I'm writing, I don't want people to think I'm a freak of stuck up like that. I think that that's the definition of most writers. They want to be a person, but then when they write, they want to be thought of as another person. All right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you're two people at all times. All right. Well, you're on the show today because you have a, a new book that actually I, I worked the. Uh, launch party. That's right. You were at the launch party, a lovely uh, event at Porchlight, yeah. a bar here on what is that, 11th Avenue in uh, Manhattan. And they do a great job. And I managed to, uh, I was very honored. I got you behind the bar and you made drinks for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So that bar was, uh, so he was head bartender at Booker and Dax at the time, Nick Bennett. Nick Bennett. Was like, uh, hey, Dave, uh, like, I think he thought I was going to be mad because there's a whole generation of uh, like hospitality people who got mad at their at their crew when they left to go do a new job. Uh-huh. That's like a thing. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, I think he was nervous. He comes up, he's like, Dave, he's like, um, he recently left Porsche, like, because he's, uh, he's doing the dad thing now. God bless. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he uh, was there seven, eight years. Yeah, long time. yeah, yeah. So when he left Booker and Dax, he was like, Dave, uh, I got um, offered a job to start my own because he thought I was going to be mad. I was like, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm so proud. You know what I mean? Like, because to me, the greatest thing you can do is have somebody that's working with you be phenomenally successful. Yeah, I know. But you may be a, a rarity in bosses in that case. I mean, I think <laughs> I think a lot of other ones do get mad, you know, when people that they've trained from the ground up take off and, you know, do their own thing. Right. Well, he was his own person. He came from Amori Margo before he was at Booker and Dax. I mean, remember, remember Amori Margo used to be tiny. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still is tiny. It still but, is tiny. Yeah, the, but uh, you, the original one is closing at the end of the year. Oh, uh, really? But super tiny. And uh-huh. it was also an incubator for a lot of, like, uh, cool So people. many. Yeah. So many bartenders. Yeah. There's a lot of incubator bars. I was very proud that Booker Index was an incubator bar. Yeah. I, that was where I first met Nick. I didn't. I did not meet Nick at Amore Margo. I met her yeah. at Booker Index. Yeah. Yeah. Also from Amore Margo, who had Southern Teague behind the stick for a while. Mm-hmm. He's still there. He's still there, and he's there at the bigger Amore Margo I mean, that Booker they opened and during COVID. Oh, at Booker and Dex. Yeah. That's right. I always forget he that. He was one of the openers at Booker and Dex. He already was at it doing Amore Margo, but he just wanted to catch the thing. He used to. How uh, long did he stay at Booker and Dex? Year or two, two years. Okay. He, cool. uh, you know, you, you always know that uh, you've worked with Southern Teague because he uses ridiculously long stirring spoons, like <laughs> absurdly long stirring spoons, like like poke your guest in the eye long. Hmm. And I don't know whether he used to like, I don't know what, like whether he was like reaching across the bar to tap people on the forehead. I don't know what you're going to do with such a long spoon. So he was one of the bartenders, one of the kind of bartenders who brings their own equipment to the job. Well, look, it was early days at Booker Index, and, you know, I made everyone, there was a huge argument, I made everyone stir in tins, because, you know, I believe in stirring in, in tins, but a lot of them wanted, and I think that one I kind of won, although they weren't too happy with me, but I let people use their own spoons, because, uh, I mean, we provided spoons. Sure. You know I mean, and uh, I think we, we let people use their own jiggers, yeah. because really, you, you want people to be fast. I mean, nowadays, you know, in the in the style of like a more like an Eric Castro's theory, I'm a believer in all bar stations identical. 
Mm. Not even mirror images of each other, completely identical. And the reason being that it allows you to support it, it, look if it's a, if it's a one bartender, a shift, set it up however you want. Mm-hmm. You know, unless the bar back's ever going to have to step in and make drinks. Right. But it, if if there's two bartenders are going to support each other, it's very helpful to have one bartender be able to just go to the other person's station and go. Mm-hmm. It's not like in a kitchen like this joker behind me where, like, you know, you have your own station and you set it up. No one's going to come in and run your station unless something horrible happens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, when I'm in a bar, you're supposed to be like, boop, and then move to the next, boop. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think things have changed probably. A lot of bars are more like that in the early days and the aughts and the early 2010s. Everyone was so individualistic and they had this innate faith in their own tools as being better than the other guy's tools yeah. and was going to make a better drink. Yeah. But yeah. I think we probably moved past that. Yeah. Yeah, poor poor craftsperson blames their <laughs> blames their tools for the low quality of the drink. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know what's funny about that is that um, this is maybe a little known. Well, let's push the book first. So uh, the new book out is the Encyclopedia of Cocktails. That's right. Uh, the people, bars, and drinks with more than a hundred recipes. Yeah, and you're one of the people. Ah, uh, nice, in there. nice. Yeah, thank. Uh, so, like, is it like how, more than a hundred, or is it like a hundred and one, or did you get like a hundred and three? I, I think uh, it's like a hundred three, hundred four. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, like a hundred and one is like, come on, dude. You know yeah, what I mean? well, then you're just being purposefully random, and yeah. you know, it's like there's yeah. no mean, there's no logic to it. If it's a hundred and four, or if it's also if it's an odd number, you're like, I want it to be an odd number. So, like, but if it's hundred and four, you're like, well, I just came up with the recipes I was going to come up with, and it happened to be over a hundred. You know, well, you I knew that, that the publisher wanted more than a hundred, so yeah. I had that number to work with. But beyond that, I could go as far as I wanted to. The more recipes, the better, as far as they were concerned. Freaking ten speed! How are they to deal with? They're like so big. I mean, like, like you know, in are they as big in they're as big in cocktails as they are in cooking, right? Like they for a while they owned like a, everything. They did so much work. I think they still own it pretty much. Uh, I yeah, no, they're great to work for. Um, their sister imprint is Clarkson Potter. Clarkson yeah. Potter is more food. Yeah. Ten Speed, I think, in the public's mind is cocktails and spirits. And uh, but they, they they used to do wing, weird wing ding food stuff. Like yeah, I, I believe ten, didn't Ten Speed do the original uh, uh, Bread Builders book? The this uh, Alan, whatever his name is, uh, Scott Wing, whatever it was, the original how to build your own like open hearth bread. They may thing. have. Ten Speed has a weird uh, history. It goes back a long way. It was an Emeryville, a uh, little independent uh, publishing imprint. Then they made a lot of money. They published that book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Remember that? Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. And, and then it just got. It What's got... the color of flaming? Yeah. Like on fire and like falling through the sky. Like that's the color of our parachute, right, Nastasia? <laughs> Yeah. Flaming. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, um, you're like, oh, let me hit the ground at a reasonable speed before the parachute burns up and then don't let it light me on fire. I hope never to catch on fire again, by the way, Robert. Yeah, that would be bad. Once you've caught on fire once, you can kind of check it off the list. Are you talking about your, your art experiment way back yeah, when yeah, we yeah, were yeah. doing the George and the Dragon? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the one, I the lost one horribly. Like, where your yeah. wife said, if you ever do that again, I'm going to divorce you, that yeah. one? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... <laughs> In general, uh, don't do that. Anyway, so you're saying yeah. uh, they started as a small... What but but I think about 10 years ago, I mean, they really uh, got into the cocktail thing before a lot of the other publishers realized it was a thing and, you know, that new books were needed. And uh, they were on the ground floor with that. And they've they've done a lot of, of the important cocktail books over the last 15 years. Nice. Yeah. Uh, if you are listening on Patreon, you can call in your questions to Robert Simonson at 917-410-1507. That's 917-410-1507. Uh, and uh, either John or Quinn, tell them uh, how to be a Patreon and why they want to do that. Patreon.com slash cooking issues. You got a bunch of different awesome membership levels, membership levels. Um, you get access to the Discord with a whole community of listeners to ask awesome questions, really engaging community. And you also get discounts at Kitchen Arts and Letters for books like this one. Yes. The Encyclopedia of Cocktails is on our list. We typically, whenever we get an author on, we, as long as Kitchen Arts and Letters carries them, which they typically always do, we, uh, what's that? Do you have a Kitchen, you have a kitchen Arts and Letters hat? Nice. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Holy smokes. That's a, that is a fantastic shop. Yeah. That's a great resource. It's the best. Do you go in there and sign books when you do the thing? You I should, do. I haven't done it for this book yet, but usually they call me up and, you know, you, you've been there. It's the tiniest place, you know. And so, I mean, a lot of books. Yeah. So yeah. many. So when uh, when Liquid Intelligence came out, I went, I, I, I came up with a, a new recipe. I had come up with a new recipe mm-hmm. uh, for milk syrup. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, that's where you, you, you 
make a 50-50, like a one-to-one with milk. Mm. And then you add uh, citric acid and it kind of pre-breaks. So it gets like almost a yogurty texture. But then when you shake with it, it doesn't break ever. It, like it doesn't curd up. It stays completely okay. But it's not yogurty tasting. It's milk syrup. You can do the same with cream. You can do cream syrup. You can do milk syrup. So like my grasshopper variant is cream syrup and... I, you know, milk syrup and Aperol is good, even though it looks like Pepto-Bismol. Looks, I mean, like, do you like Pepto-Bismol look? Uh, no. <laughs> Wait, is it Pepto-Bismol or milk of magnesia that's totally pink or both? I think both. both? Yeah. Both. I think both. Both. Yeah. 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 So we didn't, I didn't call the drink, I didn't call the drink Pepto-Bismol. No, that would not sell. Yeah. Because I figured, yeah. So I called it soft sell because the entire time I was making it, I was singing Tainted Love to myself over and over and over. Nice. Well, that's a time-honored tradition of uh, naming drinks after songs. Bartenders well, by the love way, to do that. I did not know this. What? The paper plane named after the song. Like, uh, yes, yeah. which was actually called Paper Planes. The song? Yeah. yeah, by, yeah. by, what is it, MIA? I don't know whether yeah. it's me or MIA. I always say MIA. What am I supposed to say, folks? And remember, doesn't she live in Queens? No idea. It's, it's not my group. Uh, you have to ask Sam Ross. He's the guy. It's who, a great song. Is it? I've never actually listened to it. I've just drunk the drunk drink. Wait, wait. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You call out, you give me this great fact. Don't you, you have a phone. I can see it. You've never listened to the song? I may have. I don't know. It's not really important. <laughs> it's important to find out it's why got like a they... Gun, it's got a gunshot and a cash register sound. I am my name. Oh, that's right. If a cocktail has a curious name, it's my job as a reporter to ask, you know, why did you name it that? Because there's always a story behind it. But not to listen to the song. I mean, it's it's only like it's only like three minutes of your life, Robert. You couldn't freaking... You couldn't... <laughs> Is this the one that's the, uh, the, the, the Clash cover? Oh, is it? Is that what yeah, it samples it's a All I need I'll, is a bit of I promise I'll listen to it directly after this show. Yeah. Yeah. Take them all day. It's a great song. <laughs> anyway, um, uh-huh. I don't remember the lyrics, but whenever it comes on, I dance like a mother. Right. Like a mother. Stas, you like that song? I don't know if I know it. I'd have to hear it. Uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion on this song. Oh my God. So I was working on, uh, speaking of songs, I was working on uh, Infusions for the, you know, the redo of the book. Should I ever get it done? I was doing it. And I, I did like a, a 24 infusions in little mason jars mm-hmm. and I stacked them up. And then what song could I knock out of my head? Ball of Confusion. Because I was like, Wall of Infusion. Bum, bum, bum. That's a great song, right? Yeah. That's what the world is today. Yeah, Late Temptations. Do you like that? Do you like the Late Temptations? Uh, Yeah, yeah. They had to do something to keep their act fresh, and so they got into, uh, you know, the psychedelic stuff. I think they put out some good stuff. Cloud Nine. (laughs) Oh, hold up. Got into. Psychedelic Shack is like, the whole thing is amazing. Uh, I love that whole, like, superstar. Uh I like that stuff better than the the old Temptations. Than the old Temptations? The the old school Motown Temptations? I mean, well, they're still Motown. What do you think about, like, the early 70s Temptations with the very, very long songs? You know, Papa Was Rolling Stone. That's a great tune. That's a great song. That's, that's, my, a that's great my favorite. Song. That is my favorite Temptations song. And the long version with, the like, the two-minute intro. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know what? But it's not good for bars. No. Bar music is very important. I, I discovered something recently. I had this idea. Somebody mentioned it to me. You know what you never hear in bars, cocktail bars? The Beatles. Ever. Well, unless Nastasi is putting on Rocky the Squirrel or whatever it is that she actually likes. She says she loves the Beatles, but Rocky she actually only likes Raccoon, whatever. I don't listen I love to the Beatles. The Beatles yeah. But I do agree. It's not exactly bar music. Nastasia, well, it's also because of ASCAP and BMI. Um, You're playing those. You know, yeah, but nobody actually follows those rules. Oh, I think a lot of people pay those. those I hear those a lot of Rolling license. Stones. That's true. That's bars. true. Mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, I guess you would too. Nastasi, what's the actual Beatles song that you say that you really like? I'm not going into this at all. Okay. So let's get back to. All right. Thank you. What is this? Uh, a third rail? Beatles? Something? I don't know. I don't know what it, I can never tell this. Uh, I never. I never know. Um, I never know. Although I'll give you, I will give you. What will I give you? I will give you fifty dollars if you can name Nastasia's favorite slow burn song. Of all songs, uh, slow burn intro. Slow. You mean like a long intro before you even get to yes. the lyrics? Before you get to the main part. Uh, Eminence front by the Who. No, 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 uh, no, but a British, a British person, uh, the Phil Collins, what's the Phil Collins song stars? I always forget the name of it. That's, uh, oh no, that's not my favorite slow burn. I just like the video. You like the video because you don't think he's ever going to make it to the drum kit. Yeah. It's, um, what the hell is it? Is that, I can Um, feel feel you coming in the air tonight. In the air tonight? 
where he comes in, he has to like get all the way up to the drum kit, and you're like, he's not gonna make it. He's so small. Yeah, and he makes it. He makes it every time. That's the advantage of it already having happened. You know that thing that Phil Collins does every New Year's Eve, no. where he tells you when to start that song so that the drum yeah, thing right. kicks in at midnight. He really does that. He does yeah. it every year. I like that. It's probably the best thing Phil Collins does. Really? Yeah, Do you, that I, thing every year. I used to. Uh, I used to time so. Um, my favorite ministry song of all time is obviously Jesus Built My Hot Rod. And obviously. Yeah, red line, white line version. And it's it's the version that came out on the EP that has that just engine on the cover. And it's so much better than the album version than the Psalm 69 version. It's like the best. And so I used to be deathly afraid of flying such that I would have to like load myself with uh, a Valium to do it. Mm-hmm. But I would always time that song so that when it busted from the intro into the the plane was actually on the runway taking off. So I can still to this day feel the airplane taking off when that song plays, which is amazing. It's amazing to link in your mind a song with a physical feeling and then be able to refeel the feeling every time you hear the song. Awesome. Drag racing, drag racing. <laughs> There's no use trying to talk. No human sound can stand up to this loud enough to knock you down. It's a great song. Burnout. Like that, like, I, I don't, did you grow up with that kind of ministry? No. 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 I, I did. Yeah. Mine's a terrible thing to taste is a great record. Oh my gosh. With that crazy album cover with uh, the skull on it. Yeah. You know, what happened to him? I mean, I know obviously a lot of things happened to him, but like the new, min the new ministry stuff is just so, I can't, I can't, I can't. Anyway. He's got a lot of guns, that guy. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. We tried to do an interview with him in Texas, and he's like told us to get off his property. <laughs> you set up an interview with him? Yep. And he's like, off my property. Exactly. Oh, my God. So crazy. All right. Uh, all right. So uh, this is what, the 89th cocktail book you've written? <laughs> it must feel that way. Um, no, it's the 7th. Seven. But I, 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 in, I, in as many I years. am annoyingly productive. I realize that. Well, how, what makes you like for those who? Okay, so first of all, I think I like a little self self deprecation here under the under the uh, handle. Uh, sorry, the the heading, cocktail writer. You say something like you know like uh, from a bunch of dilettantes and weasels or something. I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but basically, what, you mean the entry for cocktail writer? Yeah. is that what you're saying? Yeah, isn't that what you wrote? Well, yeah. I mean, it used to be. Um, it wasn't a profession. It, uh, it, Previously a hobby of the drinking dilettante. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, people, this wasn't a job. Uh -huh. I mean, there, we, we, you and I know a lot of people for whom this is a job, yeah. a full-time job now, including myself. Yeah. But back then, it was just like a hobby. You know, you like to drink, and so you might as well write about it. You know, people like Charles Baker and... I don't know, Lucius Beeb, you know, they wrote about other things as well, but they wrote about cocktails from time to time. And as far as newspapers were concerned, it was just like a general assignment reporter was sometimes sent to a bar and said, you know, go interview the bartender and see what people are drinking. Right, because you used to write other stuff from the time for the Times, not just yeah, I wrote, drinking um, stuff. I wrote mainly theater stuff, and I did some stuff for the uh, late lamented city section. I did mm. some travel things. Wait, they don't have the city section anymore? No, no. That was a sad day. Well, it's wait, been gone for like 10 years. Do we not have the city anymore? I haven't gotten the print paper in a long time. I think Robert. that just falls into Metro. Uh, mm. City section actually only existed for about 10 years. Uh, yeah. it, yeah. it was kind of like a micro Metro, you know, <laughs> hyper, hyper Metro. Speaking of this, speaking of the city, I was thinking about this on the way over here, biking over here. Like we are the only city I know of that is so conceited, has its head so far up its own behind that it just makes its own traffic rules and its own traffic signals. Like for those of you that don't, come to New York, New York is the only place that you can't turn right on a red, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. And I love to turn right on a red. Yeah. Well, but here's the fun thing, right? So there's no signs anywhere in New York City saying that you can't turn right on a red. So no. if you, if you rent a car, if you fly into one of our fine, fine airports. <laughs> <laughs> Sarcasm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you, you somehow you rent a car and you drive in in New York, you're going to get a ticket because there's nowhere does it say. No right on red. No right on red. You so, just have to know it. You have to know it. And it's like, uh, that's how you know a New York City driver, someone who only drives in New York City, doesn't have like an out-of-state place or anything like this. They're only a New York City driver, and they show up in your fair 
town, wherever you live, they're the ones who are driving so aggressively that you can't believe it. But then they're sitting there at the red light with their blinker on waiting to turn. You're like, what is it? And then you beep at them and they're like, and they peel out Mm -hmm. a thousand miles an hour when they realize they're allowed to make that right turn on red. Yeah, that happens to me all the time. Happens to my wife too. We go to other, we travel a lot. We go to other states. We forget in most other states, you can turn right on red and then people, somebody behind us is always honking at us. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I'm the aggressive one. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm from Wisconsin. Wisconsin has great rules. You can turn right on red and you can do a U-turn anywhere. 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 Oh, that would be mayhem here. Hmm. Mayhem. Uh, another one I saw, there's a, a random like parking thing. I mean, not parking up, a uh, traffic sign that maybe they have it elsewhere. You guys tell me. It's just a white line. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen this anywhere else other than New York? It's just a white line. You don't get to make up your own traffic signals. It's just a white line. And I think it means bus only. There's no sign. That says, hey, by the way, this traffic signal you've never seen before in your life that now you're supposed to obey yeah. means bus only. You ever gotten a ticket for a, you went through in a bus lane and you didn't know it? I mean, happens I, all the time. I live here, though. Like, I yeah. know what, a, you know. There are, I don't, there are invisible bus lanes all over the city and they'll give you tickets. For I like that. Yeah. Hey, look, this whole place is a money making racket. You know that the no turn on red is only in the city. The rest of New York State, you can turn on yeah, red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I grew up around Westchester. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So it's just here. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, like I say, they don't tell you about it. No, no. Well, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Right. E- even if it's even if it's random and it goes against everywhere else. Like we are like, you know, you'd expect like, you know, someone named Cletus to pull you over and give you like it's like some sort of old school thing. But here yeah. we are in New York. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Somebody should run for mayor on that platform. No, God. I will change the no bright turn on red. Mm. You know, it's the only other thing that we do here as New Yorkers I've noticed is jaywalk. Everywhere else you go, nobody jaywalks. And I was just on the way here this morning. I did it and there were some tourists waiting. There were no cars coming. He's like, why is he doing that? That's illegal. And they, like, they said that to you? Well, they, I heard them, the like mom say that to the daughter. You're like, wake up, like, Trump. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're busy people. We have places to go. Exactly. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'll never forget, like, the first time I went to Savannah, Georgia. Well, in fact, the only time because I never went back. Uh-huh. But, like, uh, I went to Savannah, Georgia, and I just stepped off the street. And all the cars were like, what? <laughs> and they stopped. I'm like, I'm just getting ready to walk, dudes. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's how you you can tell New Yorkers anyway, because they're they're not content to stay on the curb. No. Just one foot into the street, you know, you got that slight advantage, so you have to take it. I'm going to make a pitch that it's polite, because yeah. it's letting someone walk on the, the, the sidewalk is its own form of whatever. So, you, like, the, the, like, getting off the curb just into the street is like an exit lane to get out, but you're not in the way of the person who's actually crossing the other way where they have the light. It's polite. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, most people sort of feel that we don't even own the sidewalk anymore in New York, so we may as well take some of the road back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but people who step into the bike lane, oh, my God. Yeah, you're taking your life in your hands. Especially if I'm in that bike lane. Oh, my God. You know, you know, you <laughs> oh, that's know, right. You, you, know, bike, you biked over here. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Hey, uh, hey, uh, when you're on your bike, do you stop at stoplights and stop signs or do you breeze right through them? I, I stop or rolling stop. Mm-hmm. So like uh, I look my my general rule is uh, is don't make somebody else hit the brakes or feel nervous. So if if a, if a car has to hit the brakes because you're running a light or if another biker or if a pedestrian has to stop what they're doing because you're going through the light, you've done a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, hell with it. In fact, like how many times have you seen bikers get T-boned because they're waiting and then when they start up at the red light, the person just makes the turn right into them. I've seen it so many times. Like, so like, I no. like I'm just going to sit there at the light and wait to get T-boned by that car. Mm-hmm. No, thanks. You know yeah. what I mean? You have to be pretty fearless to, uh, to bike in this city. I Definitely. don't know. Because everyone's going kind of slow. It freaks me out outside of the city where people are doing like 80 mile an hour next to you. I've seen a lot of fast bikers in this city. Very fast. Faster than cars often. Well, yeah, it depends. I mean, like, you're only allowed to go whatever. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, we, anyway. We, 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 this, is a, this isn't about cocktails. No, no. All right. Uh, we missed the section of the show where people say if they've uh, had anything or done anything interesting uh, food-wise over the past week. Anyone? Anyone? How's your Belgique menu going, John? It's stalled. Some had no call, no show last week, and... Yeah, just been back to hiring, unfortunately. Ah, life gets in the way. Get oh, those. so no call, no show, instant fire, man. I like that that's still Well, not still instant a- fire. You know, I gave him three or four days, and then he texts me back on the fourth day and says, you know, I was in the hospital. Like, I'll come in tomorrow with paperwork. And then he just never showed, and I've never heard back from him. So, mm. yeah. Mm. 
It's great. Love it. Yep. Love it. Love it. That's why it's so hard to do anything. It's like, it like really the is. The pressure of service is the reason why. That's why when I was at the French Culinary Institute, it was such a good like thing because people could come in and we could iterate stuff for them without because we didn't have the pressure of service. You, can't, it's so hard to do development and service at the same yeah. time. So hard. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and especially nowadays that everyone wants to like be a human being and like do everything else. Like there's yeah. no time left for development. You Agreed. know what I mean? Yeah. It's very I'm, difficult. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, times of change in. Uh, so uh, how many of the books would you say that you've done are historically bent? Uh, well, most of them, but some of them are historically bent in the idea that we're talking about the distant past. Like I have a book about the martini and a book about the old fashioned. And so it takes the whole history of that drink up until the present day. Um, and then there was a book called A Proper Drink, which was a history of the cocktail revival, which right, was right. more of a narrative, not recipe book. That was and what, six years ago? Yeah, it came out 2016. So it takes the movement up until uh, 2016 and then stops there. Yeah. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. Nothing. Nothing. And nothing important has yeah, happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Not, not, not a thing. <laughs> not a thing. Um, yeah. And this one is, you know, as an encyclopedia, is also historical nature. Like, yes. You know, but modern and past. So this is kind right. of bridging that. I've, I've tried to encompass everything. It goes back to um, the late 1700s and encompasses the entire cocktail history in the world. It comes up until 2023, actually. I, yeah. I kept adding updates and sentences until it went to a print. Nice. Well, I, um, I'm sure your editor appreciated that. Uh, actually, she encouraged it. Really? Oh, yeah. nice. That's strong. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, question. Do you... So, history is a point of view with a bunch of... Cherry-picked is not the right word because that is pejorative. Nastasia's least favorite word that I use. But like, so <clears throat> when you're writing a history, right, mm -hmm. do you, first of all, do you agree that like all, all histories are, are points of view, obviously? Yeah, they're to a certain uh, extent, they are subjective. Yes. I right. mean, somebody else would have written the encyclopedia cocktails. And I think about two thirds of the book would have been the same, the same subject matter. Right. But the other third would have been selective. Right. And so the thing is, right, people get to kind of choose People get to kind of choose what the canon is in the way that like MoMA chooses what the canon of That's uh, right. art is, right? Mm -hmm. um, for good or for ill. Yeah. Um, so when you're doing something like this, how do you, especially now, how do you choose when you are going to leave someone in, for instance, David Embry, who was very important but was a rancid individual, yeah. versus more modern people who you might not have in who have done bad things but also had influence? How do you kind of draw that line between, like, bad actors from the past, bad actors from the present, or do you not feel like you have to parse that so much when you're working on it? You have to parse that a little bit. I mean, uh, if, a, if a person is important, they're important. I mean, they may have, be a bad individual. You mentioned David Enbury, who was uh, idolized by many people in great the writer. cocktail revival. Yeah, produced this great book, um, uh, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. And then we found out later that his uh, sympathies t lended towards uh, the Nazi yeah. <laughs> and all that kind of thing. And so it's, it's difficult to like him anymore, but still he made his contribution. And so he remained in there. He's also a bad tipper. Uh, was he? And that, uh, so that, that guy who had that amazing cocktail book collection, yes. uh, who died a number of years ago, saw him give a talk in like 2008 or nine at an early tales of the cocktail. And, uh, I was like, hey, he said he poured drinks for him, mm -hmm. right? Because he's old, you yeah. know? And I was like, oh, how was he? He's like, bad tipper. Yeah. I was like, oh, son of, son of a gun. That's bad. Uh, he lived up in Larchmont. I actually saw his house once. It was for sale um, and briefly had this fantasy of buying it and turning it into a bar. I didn't have the money to do that. And now, and now I'm kind of glad that I didn't yeah, do it. yeah. But um, another person, another figure that's in the book is Charles Schumann, who is basically like the Dale de Graaf of Germany, even of Europe. But he's gotten into a lot of trouble um, in recent years uh, due to his um, antiquated sexist points of views of who belongs behind a bar and who doesn't. And yet he's still in there. I mean, I, but I include a line about the controversy so that people have a full picture 
of his impact and career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me see. I got some questions here. Oh, by the way, I noticed that uh, you talk a little bit about Calvados versus uh, Applejack. A little and, bit, and, yeah. And Apple Brandy. And, and you brought some Calvados. Yeah, well, so like, here's the thing, right? This is my pitch to everyone. Since you're, if you're a cocktail person, you can make this happen. Yeah. Uh, so... First of all, uh, you know, going back to like uh, cost and all that, like one of the things I think that Sasha and his crew, his ilk are not necessarily remembered for by JQ Public is that they used very cheap liquor to very good effect. Right. And so like things like Rittenhouse, which were fundamentally free, not anymore, but they were fundamentally free at the time, uh, hard to get, but not expensive. They would make a lot of these amazing drinks around it. Same with like, you know, the uh, Laird's Apple Brandy, the Bottled and Bond, you know, that really fit their whole brand, right? You know, Lisa Laird is what, like a billionth generation, like family owned uh, Apple Brandy distiller right over the river in Jersey, Uh uh, still making it, you know, and, and when I was you know, young, you could just get the Apple Jack, which is the the blended. And then, you know, really, I've, you know, like Chad Solomon and Sasha's whole group kind of brought back the, you know, the prevalence in bar in the bar world of the bottled and bond. Yeah. Uh, hundred, you know, the hundred proof bottled and bond uh, apple brandy from Laird's. Yes. Which is, you know, a great product. I use it. Uh, but it's almost impossible to get their Jersey Lightning, which is their moonshine. Yes, I don't see that very often. It used to be impossible to get the bonded. Yeah, I mean, there was this great campaign during the aughts among bartenders to get it. But that's um, because of the whole Sasha crew. It's like all their crew. I would like to add, though, you said that they made good drinks out of uh, inexpensive booze. that didn't mean it was bad booze. It was it was good spirits. It's just things were cheap back then because they were unappreciated. Uh, They used to have uh, Pappy Van Winkle in their well. Yeah, well, Pappy Van Winkle cheap. used to be well the other the lower marks. I used to buy the fifteen for thirty dollars a bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they were, at, at Astor, like I didn't have to search around for it. I could go to Astor Place or Warehouse Wines, which are two like relatively large wine stores, that, you know, near Eighth Street, you know, in Lower Manhattan, <clears throat> and I just go buy it. Right. Nobody wanted right. it. I remember when it changed uh, because I called Julian Van Winkle. So we were the the a bunch of Spanish chefs were coming over. So it was Ferran Adria, like Martin Berasategui, like the Arzacs, like you know Kike de Costa. All these people were coming over to the French Culinary Institute. Yes, and my job was to get them something American. So I'm like, I'm going to get Pappy 15. Okay. Right. So and because it was still like thirty dollars a bottle, but it had just hit. This was like twenty, like this is like two thousand and five or six, maybe six, maybe, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it had just kind of hit, and I was like, I can't find it anywhere. What the hell's going on? Because I just bought a bottle recently, you know what I mean? And the price hadn't spiked, so I called Julian Van Winkle the third or whatever his name is. You had like, his number. Back then, you could just get in touch with people. Okay. I got I call him, and he's like, yeah, no, you can't. I can't. I was like, I, like, I was like th- this is what I want to get people to show what America is. You can't get me, like, 10 bottles? He's like, no, they're all gone. I was like, damn. Yeah. I was late to that party. I, I mean, I had... By the time I was trying to drink the Pappy stuff, you know, it was all expensive and allocated. Yeah, my first bottle of Pappy was 20 but I wasn't buying that because that was like $45, $50, too much. It was a gift. Yeah. From Bobby Flay, actually. Yeah, way <laughs> we, back uh, in the day. The whole bartending community, all of us, we sort of created our own problem. We, like, pointed to all the good stuff saying this is the good stuff. Then everyone else knew, and the prices skyrocketed. Well, and now, like, all the wonderful... Spirits that we drank for nothing, we can't even get. We used to use Yamazaki and Hibiki in, in cocktails. Eric Castro told me that at the Rick House in San Francisco when they opened in the late aughts, 2009, they had that in the well. They put it in all the cocktails. Yes. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so this is a... Uh, so. What so, is your point of view, by the way? Do you, uh, When you are making an apple brandy cocktail, do you think it is better with Calvados or with Applejack? Uh, Calvados, okay, so that's what I'm going to say. Most Calvados to me, like, so look, like Laird's apple brandy is very woody, right? But it's, you know, 100 proof. But like considering the color of most Calvados, it's extremely, I don't think it plays well in the kind of drinks that I like to make. I like to, if I want apple brandy, a lot of times I want to shake with it. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think it works very well in most shaking drinks. But this which is Blanche Calvados and clean as a whistle is cheap. It's just unavailable. This is like 30, this is like 30 something a bottle retail. 
And but, it, but you can't find it? Is that you what you're can't saying? find it. Yeah, Baron Francois does not push this stuff. This is Drouin's, uh, you pronounce it my, my French friend, my Belgique, my uh, homme de Belgique. La Blanche de Christian Drouin, eau de vie de cidre. Yeah. It's delicious. Blanche it Calvados. is delicious, but it's so different from Laird's Applejack that, like I say in the book, you, it's not necessarily a better cocktail. It's just a different cocktail. Right. So, But this is also different from anything from Calvados. This, like, is, this is a shaking dream. You can okay. shake this like nobody's business. How clean is that? It's very clean. So did you use this in cocktails at Booker and Dax in existing conditions? Existing conditions. We used to pour more of it than I think anyone else. We also used a Blanche, a Blanche Armagnac, which mm -hmm. is like the cleanest grape, you know, un, unaged grape. Because when for me, in a shaking cocktail, unless I'm looking for... Joe, you want to try this stuff or no? No. Uh, unless I'm looking for like a specific characteristic, I kind of want like clean and this like lets the apple kind of come out but it does it doesn't have a lot of other crap riding over it yeah you know what i mean yes and it's a good product right it is no it's a great product why don't why don't people buy this i sent a message I... to baron francois which is the thing i was like what the hell and they're like yeah literally one store carries it in manhattan I think in spirits, there are certain lost causes. I've covered this beat for 17 years, and I've seen people like you champion certain spirits like Calvados, like Armagnac, like uh, Aquavit. Aquavit. Aquavit's the best. It never happens. It's never going to happen. It's not going to tell. There's something about the American palate. They, don't want, they do not want these things. But this, Americans would love this. You're saying Americans wouldn't like this? Yes, that's what I'm saying. This. As an everyday drink, it's not going to replace no, in cocktails. In cocktails, well, it's, if it's your bar and you're making the cocktails, you can put whatever you want in them. Yes, that I will. That doesn't mean that they're going to start ordering it straight the way they order bourbon straight. Oh no, no, I don't think this is this is not a straight sipper. I would rather straight sip aged calvados. Uh huh. But I'm I'm as a cocktail to me that's a versatile ingredient, whereas like aged calvados not so versatile, mm -hmm. right? Or like, you know, frankly. Like a lot of, like, Akavit is a very versatile cocktail drink. Again, I don't drink it straight. Yeah. But it's, like, super good. I mean, unless you're doing the skull thing. But. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. Uh, Toby Cicchini's a big fan of uh, Aquavit. And if you go to Long Island Bar, his bar in Brooklyn, he uh, he will pour you some. He yeah. has a few cocktails. No, maybe two on the menu that have it in it. We almost always had a Linny drink on the menu. Did you? Yeah. And. Uh, and did people order it? Oh, yeah. All the time. Okay. Uh, and. Uh, I love Linny, and uh, for years I did a, a, a project at the French Culinary Institute, the Skoll Project, where uh -huh. we made our own Akavit oh. illegally, and we're doing, <laughs> uh, you know, doing pictures of people sculling. Yeah. We have Merle Haggard. Nastasi and I and Travis, my brother-in-law, flew to Modesto to go to a Merle Haggard concert to get him to skull. Remember that, Stas? It's awesome. Yeah, I do. Modesto. It's the best thing that has ever happened to a person in Modesto. So you met him? Yeah, a couple okay. times. All right. Excellent. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. We got uh, Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. Yeah. He's still around, isn't he? I don't know. If he is, he's a billion years old. You know, I found out that he slept with Janis Joplin. He got around. He knew a lot of people. He used to own a mansion out uh, in the Hamptons that was built by Stanford White. Burned to the ground, though. Oh, all right. Well, all this checks out. By the way, <laughs> speaking of uh, Janis Joplin, Nastasia will like this fact, but it's not radio-related, so I'll keep it brief. The the place that we went after the Paulie Shore concert, Barney's Beanery, was where Janis Joplin had her last drink. I think it might have been the one in Hollywood, though. Oh, we weren't in West Hollywood? No. Oh, it's the one in West Hollywood. Sorry. It was probably I, yeah. Southern Comfort, I would guess. She drank that. She made Southern Comfort so famous, you know, among the hippie community. First thing I ever got drunk on. I mean, not drunk, uh, sick on. Hmm. Yeah, never been a favorite of mine. Never had it again. Yeah. People hand me, so Misty Kalkalfin, who also was in the book and working the event, yes. did a peach drink with, with I think it was, I can't remember whether it was rye or bourbon. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, uh, Soko is the first thing that ever made me sick. And she's like, oh, can, are you triggered? I'm like, no, that was a long time ago. I'm 52. That was like a million years ago. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like five lifetimes ago. Uh, <laughs> I remember when the Sazerac company, they reintroduced it. They relaunched Southern Comfort recently, and I interviewed uh, them about it. And um, it's it's always assumed it's a, a whiskey drink, that there is whiskey in it. And for the longest time, there was zero whiskey in that. And so the biggest change they did was they put the whiskey back in. Oh, it well, was neutral grain spirit. And and peach garbage and fake wood? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Just, 
terrible. Just poisonous. Poisonous. And now it's it actually doesn't really taste that much better, but it does have whiskey in it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. Um, I also like when you, in your infusion, you, you call out hibiscus. Like of all the things to call, if you're only going to call out five things, hibiscus. What's wrong with that? I see a lot of cocktails with uh, hibiscus. Infusions. I love hibiscus. Yeah. I've used it many times. My bartenders have used it many times. I love yeah, it. But it's yeah. just like if you're going to choose like four things. Well, what would you choose instead? Oh, I mean, yeah, I put in jalapeno, jalapenos in there. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's very common as far as tequila drinks are concerned, uh-huh. mezcal drinks are concerned. Yeah. I guess there are a million things to infuse. I just put in the things that I saw most commonly at bars. All right. Let's talk about a different book, The Three-Ingredient Cocktail. Sure. Yeah. So I love three-ingredient cocktails. So do I. Uh, But for me, so like I ran years ago at Booker & Dax, we we ran a three-ingredient cocktail contest with our bartenders. First person to get a three-ingredient cocktail menu uh, on the menu, they won a prize. I forget what it was. I think we gave them one of the Meehan, Jim Meehan roll-up bartender bags. Oh, those were cool. Yeah. I still have one. Yeah. Um, But... uh, yeah, I, lo- I love a three-ingredient drink just because I think it <clears throat> it promotes mental diligence to be able to just do it with three. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. But, like, uh, you get to you work very hard on those three ingredients because, like, you know, we weren't just choosing three ingredients off the back bar. It was three ingredients. You know what I mean? So, you know, you were allowed to, you know, tweak, you know, centrifuge, whatever you needed to do to the ingredient to get it where it needed to be uh-huh. and do it. And it ended up being a drink that Jack Schramm did called the uh, Tropic Thunder, which was, uh, what was it? It was uh, milk washed, I forget what it was, milk washed rum and uh, pineapple syrup, I think pineapple syrup and lime, I think, I forget, it was something like that. Yeah. Great. And so, yeah, what's, what's your reason for doing the three ingredient book? Yeah. Well, that's a very Booker and Dax three-ingredient cocktail. Yeah. Um, I wrote uh, that book in uh, 2017 because uh, we were in the thick of the cocktail revival, and there were a lot of ornate eight-ingredient cocktails out there. And I was worried that everybody who loved these cocktails was intimidated and thought they could not make cocktails at home. And I wanted to remind them all the best cocktails that were ever invented were very simple, and you can make them too. All you you, You only have to get a few ingredients, and you can perfectly construct these things at home. And so that's what that book was about. Oh, so that's what the motivation was. You're coming at it from a totally different angle than we were coming at it. The stuff on the back bar, stuff you find in the liquor store. And I think there are just a few syrups in there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a couple infusions. Yeah. Cause I, cause for me, it's like, I always, in my mind, like the difference is like <clears throat> very kind of sparse, like couple of ingredients versus like shotgun style. It's mm-hmm. like, what you know what yeah. what what do i have back there blah, 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 blah. Like, you know what i mean like right right it's like it, like uh, i i liken it to um modern chickens so like uh modern chickens are like amazingly big and tender and they you know they they're very efficient at converting f- uh food to to meat right but they are a layer of a billion different weird interventions uh-huh. on top and some of these cocktails are like that where it's like well that's not quite right so add just a sous-son of this add like a little bit of the right yeah that's your approach no 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 i'm like three ingredients so like yeah but you want to mess with all three of them ingredients but i'm not i don't but i'm not like i don't want to be I'm not like, I'm going to take these three ingredients, but then I'm going to add 30 other things to make it taste okay. You know what I mean? I'm like, you know, let's like focus on this flavor, this flavor, and this flavor and getting those flavors to work together Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, you know what every cocktail needs in the world? It needs a bar spoon of Sue's and a bar spoon of chartreuse, which by the way, makes everything taste good. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just a different style. Right. You know? But you're not going to like grab Chinar off the shelf and say, let's put this in this three ingredient cocktail. You're going to say, how can I make Chinar better? How can I make my own Chinar? So you're going to do it like that well, way. I would focus on like Chinar is delicious. So, you, okay. So maybe I mean, you but, would use Chinar. No, I use it, but I, I would use, when I use it, I focus on it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, like I, I do a, a frozen drink that's basically just Chinar and, and pineapple juice. Okay. It's great. Chinar and pineapple, good buddies. 
But there are very few bartenders out there anymore that just rely on what's on the back bar. Uh, yeah. Phil Ward out in Long Island Bar, he's one of the last that I know. He doesn't invent new cocktails. He doesn't create new ingredients. He just whatever's on the back bar. That's those are his the limitations he sets up for himself, and he makes which is drinks. smart. Which is why people make his drinks because they're That's easy right. to do. Right. So like you know, I've always like promoted uh, a non back bar approach, and this is why very few people make the drinks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. Yes, that's why it's hard for you to come up with a modern classic. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, this is from uh, Fucci. Uh, talk a little bit about absinthe. I had my first cocktail made with absinthe, and I quite enjoyed it. Death in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, absinthe, lemon, semi, semi-rich semi sugar. Although, look, people, there's no reason to ever make a semi-rich. Either use rich simple or use one-to-one. Like anything in between, please, please, please. Why make your life hard? Semi-rich, does he mean like one and a half to one? Is that? But, yeah, but a lot of Europeans do this. What, what the heck? Like get with the program. It doesn't make any sense. That's, that's what keeps the world interesting. The Euro- Europeans bartenders have a lot of habits that we don't have, and some of them don't make any sense, but it's kind of fun that they exist. They have weird, they have weird jiggers over there. And like, like I asked a bunch of people in London when they, they, I was doing a talk. And uh, I was like, what's your standard pour? Standard pour here is 60, mm-hmm. right? You know, two ounces, 60 standard pour for a cocktail. Yeah. And they had some dumb number, like 50 or like some crazy number, some some sort of <laughs> random non. I was like, what the hell? And they're like, yeah. I was like, Europeans, man. Although yeah. they're not European anymore. You see that thing at uh, European bars, a lot of European bartenders do this when they're making a drink. They'll have the two tins. They fill one tin with ice, and then they put the other tin on top of the ice in the other tin to Rather keep it chilled. Yeah. While they're, and then they start pouring the ingredients in yeah, the second yeah. one. And it's just so strange, but they swear by it. Yeah, well, you know, look, uh, as long as you're <laughs> focusing on whatever you're doing, you're, you're, you're good. Anyway, yeah. so... Uh, um, Question anyway. about absinthe. Yeah, so, uh, talk, so you know, you're, you're going to know a lot more about absinthe than I am. So talk about it. Uh, oh, sorry. I doubt so that. death in the afternoon, absinthe, lemon, uh, uh, sugar syrup, and Prosecco in coupe glass. You do talk about the coupe glass. I do. I do. I talk about the coupe glass, which made a huge comeback in the last 20 years. Before that, everything was served in a martini glass. Which they're, they're terrible. Up glasses, yeah. they're the worst. Yeah. They suck. They'll, they'll, never, they'll never die, the martini glass. I hope they do. They never will. Because um, there's something about that. Uh, there are certain customers who want that glass. And also, if you give them a martini that's not in a martini glass, they will get upset. They're not getting what they expect. But absinthe, mm. I am... Uh, if you come to my bar, people, get ready to get upset. Yeah. Uh, absinthe, I think, is best in uh, small touches. I always think of it as an accent ingredient, and that's how it best flatters a cocktail. I'm not a big fan of absinthe, like an absinthe frap or something that's mainly absinthe. I mean, you really have to like that. Is nice that because you're an American like I am and you hate all licorice? What about you? What about pretty you, much, Frenchy, Frenchy, pretty French, much. Belgian yeah. man? Are you an absinthe man or no? Oh, you hate licorice. I hate licorice. Oh, he's the only was, euro that hates I licorice. I was just in Athens for the first time, and I did not drink any ouzo. I just, it's not my thing. Did you fall? Did I fall? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? So Athens is like the slipperiest place on earth. Oh, yeah. Although everything's marble. Yeah. It was very slippery. Yeah. Did you fall? No, I didn't. But I almost did. Nastasia and I went barefoot sometimes. It was so slippery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to say to them, you know, marble's not great for everything. Yeah. Well, the whole place is like the, the it's built on a marble hill. The whole thing is marble. Mm-hmm. Nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and if it rains, forget about it. Yeah. And they don't have like, I guess, lawsuits like we have here. So it's like, you know, it's like, oh, that dude, he slid down the mountain and died. You're like, oh, Christ gave a speech here and he slipped down the mountain. Didn't kill him, though. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like it's crazy over there. Yeah. There was a moment in time in the late aughts when we were trying to make absinthe a bigger thing in this country, and we actually opened absinthe bars, but most of them, like, flopped almost yeah, immediately. Yeah, well, uh, it did double digits growth because everyone thought they were going to get high on Thujon. Uh-huh. You know, and then— Well, it was this forbidden thing, and everyone yeah. wanted to taste the forbidden thing, and yeah. then they said, oh, it's licorice. Okay, they're next. Like, next. Yeah, they're like, ooh, I like, <laughs> I like Van Gogh and Lautrec, so, like, I'm going to like this. Yeah. And no, oh, I hate this. You know what I mean? Wow, this, I hate it. Um, I like it, actually. I'm fine with it. But, you know, like. Uh, well, like I said, I like it in little touches. Do you know what, I, yeah. you know, you know what the, the best little touch is? What? A tiny, tiny, tiny old, old, old man in Marseille pounding like little glasses of. Uh, I forget whether they're like, uh, are they Ricard there? They always forget whether they're Ricard in Marseille. There's like Pernod and there's Ricard. Mm-hmm. I forget which one is Marseille, but like they're sitting there around the old ports going. 
I think it's Ricard down there. Yeah, like just taking these little shots. Yeah. Little yeah. people, little shots. So old. I love it. Yeah. The old port in Marseille is fantastic. I've never been. Oh, my God. you never been to Marseille? No. Oh, Marseille is great. John, you like Marseille? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. What, about, what about you, Joe? Stas, anyone? Marseille? It's got grit. Never been. It's got grit. Do you like seafood soup? Sounds good. It's the cap. It's the world capital of bouillabaisse. True. I know it has this reputation for grit. Is that, did it have a reputation for criminality for a long time? Is there a difference? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, I don't like things that are totally on the up and up. So, like, you go into Marseille and, like, you know, you're getting, like, you're, like sea urchins off the off the boat as they come in. And, like, at any minute you could get ripped off. And I'm like, I, I, I feel it here. It's good. You know what I mean? That's the town where I saw an organ grinder get so mad at his monkey the monkey was acting up. And so the organ grinder like has the monkey on the thing. He's packing him back up in the van and he just goes wham and smashes the, the monkey's head into the van. And I was like, oh, this place is rough. When the organ grinder <laughs> and the monkey are getting into a fight on the street, I was like, this place is legit. You know what I mean? And yeah. Yes, yeah. So I was like, I love it here. Like I, I could be here a long time. If I only I spoke French. Weren't and, the first scenes in the French Connection in Marseille? Probably. That's I where a lot, so. the, a lot of the drug running and stuff was. Yeah. And then you take a train, like, not even like an hour, maybe an hour up to X, and it's like freaking Westchester up there. Totally I was like, different, yeah. Oh, my God. Those people were, like, compared to Marseille, not my... Wait, wait, you're you're more of an ex kind of guy, yeah, right? Yeah. With your calisson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sit in my cafe, eat my calisson. Whatever. Uh, do they have any cocktail bars in Marseille, or are they just all shooting Ricard? I don't know. I haven't been there in a long time. Okay. I haven't been there since the revival, mm. but I would love to go back. There's got to be at least one. We stayed in an old Corbusier. Uh, so, like, the reason we were there is my wife was doing a project on a on a designer named Charlotte Perrion, who did a lot of uh, mm -hmm. furniture. And my wife was a scholar of Charlotte, or is a scholar of Charlotte Perrion. And so she did all the furniture in this uh, building he did called Unité, which is like one of the early kind of post-war uh, Corbu, like high rises outside of Marseille. So we stayed overnight in that hotel. It was fun. Excellent. Yeah. But he was a scum sucker. Oh, yes. Corbusier? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, was, I do not know. Not my bailiwick. Taking, anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to have to add Marseille to the list. Places to visit. I mean, when I say scum sucker, I mean, like, just, you know, taking other people's ideas. It's a general, like, you know, mid-century, like, male, like, blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you yeah. don't become that famous without, you know, doing a few bad things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> doing some people wrong. So, you're, so you're, you don't have any uh, words of wisdom for on absinthe for... Uh... Oh, you know, I do. I mean, use it just sparingly. I mean, I th it is a great accent. Uh, there's so many uh, cocktails that require it. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring it back so desperately, because every time we opened an old cocktail book, half of the cocktails asked for absinthe. Well, that's because they were all that one from that one period of time when it was the ketchup of the day. Right. It was the bartender ketchup of the day. Yeah. And it was a good ketchup. It works. It works. Like it absolutely it, works. You know, if you pick up a book from like you know two thousand and like eleven, two thousand twelve, you you'd think that Fernet's in everything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because it was ketchup for a while. If this person lives in New York, do they? Do we know where they live? No, no information. I would recommend they, they, they live go on Vancouver Island. Oh, uh, <laughs> that's my dad. That's your dad. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> I would recommend they go to Maison Premier. A bar in Brooklyn, they have more absinthe than anybody, and you can just sit there and taste a bunch and find out which ones you like. They also probably have more cocktails with absinthe in it. I like the theory of the drip. Yes. Drips are fun. The absinthe drip is yeah, fun. It's fun. Yes. But then you end up with a milky glass of licorice. Ye but it's fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I happen to like licorice. Um, but Americans just, we hate it. We really hate it. I like Twizzlers, which is not licorice, but we pretend it is. <laughs> Uh, does Twizzlers even make a black? Uh, no, I don't no. think so. Well, they may, they used to. I'm hearing from Joe that they, they do, but they like do. no oh, one. Yeah. All right. Jason, yeah, Jason writes in, uh, if you were on the Titanic and you were going down with the ship, by the way, famous publisher, uh, from the Roy Crofters, uh, uh, Hubbard was his name and not related to the religion guy. Uh, he and his wife went down on the Titanic, didn't go on the lifeboat, just stood up there and thought it was a romantic way to go down. So if you're doing a Roy Crofters, like sinking on the Titanic, and you're going to order three cocktails instead of trying to get yourself on that lifeboat, mm -hmm. what are they? All right. So you're going down on the Titanic. Right. And this it takes a couple of hours. I mean, I've seen both movies. It takes a while. So you can get a good three cocktails in. 
Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And I would, I would assume they had good cocktails on the Titanic. It was a luxury liner. Yeah. Everybody, well, most people there were rich. Um, and you probably want a strong drink so that you can close off your mind to what is happening, which is your imminent demise. So I would have three martinis in a row. Really? Three dry martinis in a row. Why, why mess around? It's the greatest cocktail. They oh, would have had oh the best gin, and then you would have been drunk, and you wouldn't care. Oh, my God. So, so okay, so martini. Martini, martini, martini. So martini, but how fast do you consume a martini? Uh, not very fast. So you like it even as it warms up? No. By not fast, it's like 10 minutes. It's still cold. Okay. Yeah. How fast do you drink a martini? I mean, to me, a martini is a sipper, but like, in the, but I hate it when it gets warm. No, it's deadly when it's warm. It has to be cold. So you find that sweet spot. I think you can do it, do it in 10 minutes. You don't want to gulp it and do three gulps because it's like a sledgehammer. So you keep it like in the water, like just like cool with the ocean as it's... Yeah, maybe I would tell the Titanic steward to do it in like the Audrey Saunders style with a sidecar. So like half of the drink is on ice and it stays yeah. cold that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's like You're... in the, the masa martini glass. You know, Katana Kitten. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah it's in, in, the, in the box, you exactly. know. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That's a good place. Did you guys... You but know, what would your three drinks be? Wait, what were you, Joe, what were you going to say? There was just some news about the Titanic where they uh, they found a menu. Sold the first class menu for $1.2 at oh. auction. Oh, really? Yeah. And oysters. What, what, weren't there beverages on that menu as well? A couple things, yeah. 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 Tomato juice and... Other delicacies. Champagne, probably. Do you yeah. know what's funny? Certain things come into vogue as soon as a company figures out how to do it, and then they come into vogue. Like, for instance, pineapple. Like, so Dole figured out how to can pineapple, mm -hmm. and then they put a zillion dollars into making a bunch of recipes with canned pineapple because now they had this, like, they took over a whole island and basically put into forced labor that entire island growing pineapples. And then they paid people, including my favorite uh, Monroe Boston Strauss, to like come up with pineapple recipes. So like all the pineapple recipes from like the 30s and yes. 40s, all paid for by Dole, all paid for by Dole. The pineapple hegemony, all these recipes that you see right, come out right. is all paid for by big whatever. It I is. noticed in my research uh, on the old fashioned book after Prohibition. The garnishes were not just orange and cherry anymore. There was always a pineapple, and that went on through the 30s. And I was so curious, and then somebody suggested, well, it's just the pineapple industry. It is. You know? Yeah. They used to They used to have a their main office um, in the 48 where it was in San Francisco. And yeah. so, like, you know, Big Pineapple's money went from Hawaii over to San Francisco and then radiated out like a spider of pineapple wealth yeah. all over. And they hired the best people of their time. They infiltrated, uh, mag like, magazines aimed at consumers. They infiltrated, like, professional organizations it's like this, mm. is, this is still the way things work big fruit yeah big fruit <laughs> uh so uh my three i can have anything they have anything i want i would assume the titanic has everything yes uh maybe not southern comfort so oh but i can't choose like drinks that like i wish that someone could make for me it I think this is a fantasy question, and you should just say which three drinks you're having. Uh, Assume I, the Titanic can make anything. I would have the I would have a, a drink we used to have called the VEP Chartreuse, which was yellow VEP clarified lime carbonated, which is one of my favorites. I would have uh, maybe uh, purple, which is Akavit and purple basil nitro muddled, and then a big old glass of champagne to finish off. Champagne, that's a good way to finish off. So your your wish involves time travel. I don't know. Yes. All right. I was like, uh, <clears throat> uh, Rodolfo uh, Cordero writes in, uh, wait, uh, a home bar enthusiast have my own carbonation system at home, primarily a standalone CO2 tank with a single line. The only issue is there are concerns for the safety of having a five-pound carbonation tank at home. How safe are they to have safe? Uh, the main thing is if someone knocks them over and breaks them, it'll vent. But, it, you know, small amounts like that, even if it vents, it's not going to cause any any damage in your house. People have them inside all the time. I mean, you should chain them so that they don't fall over. Uh, but five pounds, you're, you're good to go. Uh, Dan Watson, opening a new cocktail bar shortly. A large part of our program is going to be highballs and house-made seltzer, so we want our carbonated water game to be top-notch. My main question is, do you still recommend the big uh, the McCann Big Mac carbonator as well as the CM Becker premix taps? Yes. Um, Herring Deck in Bar Nuremberg says, uh, do you think, you Robert, that, uh, that the era of the modern classic drink is over since more and more bars are making advanced drinks with homemade ingredients and have uh, menus with exclusively their own signature drinks? Uh, short answer, sadly, yes. I do believe it, that era is over. Uh, uh, mm. Well, it's just harder and harder to make a simple drink that can be replicated uh, that is a modern classic that hasn't been done before. So, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, Almost impossible. Martin Schwab, tea-infused spirits versus carbonated tea for highball cocktails. What's the best call? Um, it depends on how much alcohol and how cold they are. Carbonated tea sometimes is a little bit too astringent. What do you think? This uh, this is this is your question. Yeah, I mean, I I think look, you should milk wash it. That's what I said. I came up with a whole technique to knock back the tea because I think that like a very cold alcohol in tea is sometimes too astringent, and that's why people you go really light on the tea. Uh, from S, I carbonate a few things at home: water, uh, hibiscus tea mainly, using CO two tank regulator and chest refrigerator. A three year old video on YouTube shows that you have an on demand carbonation setup. Any big differences between the two approaches besides batch versus continuous? That's a pretty big difference. Continuous seltzer on tap. No, Mark Powers and Company website I recommend they no longer sell to people um, but uh, yeah no like having carbonated carbonated water on tap which I've had for the past 25 30 years is the single greatest move I ever made in my life next to marrying my wife and having kids <laughs> you know what I mean People uh, have carbonation on their mind a lot. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Robert Simonson's book is the Encyclopedia of Cocktails. You can yep. you can buy it at uh, any fine kitchen arts and letters near you. Yeah. Uh, buy it from them. Use the Patreon code. And by the way, Matt from Kitchen Arts and Letters will be on next week. We're going to try to get in touch with uh, Will Robinson's mom, who is a supervisor at Butterball prior to Thanksgiving. But get your Thanksgiving questions in <laughs> uh, for next week. Uh, Robert, thanks for coming on. Hope you had a good time. I had a great time. All right. Cooking issues. 